0: Hello and welcome to Plant Pals, my podcast where I talk to my pals about plants. I'm your host, Mike, and my guest this week is Dr. Hazel Holmes, healing from the slag heaps of Pennsylvania. Also, shout out to my buddy Justin, who's on Instagram at IronHardString for editing this week because it sounds wicked good. Here we go.
1: thanks for tuning in to listen to me talk on this podcast. <laughs> um, so depending on how you know me, you probably know me under a different name. Um, I, my given name that I use professionally is uh, Marion Holmes, but nobody in my personal life calls me by my first name. So people I know from outside of work so a lot of them don't know my given name and people I know from work don't know that I don't actually that's that's not actually what I'm called until we like cross the boundary into being yeah. like friends and not just colleagues. So to everybody outside of like professional land, I'm Hazel. So um you can call me either, I guess. If you're if you're looking me up on Google Scholar, it'll be under Marion. If you look me up on like social media, it will not be. It'll be under Hazel, but same person. Two different names, lots of confusion over the years. I like the
0: the work-life boundary, including, like, a working name. And (laughs) I tried that with my, like, Michael. But I was like, no, this feels wrong. I'm not Michael.
1: Yeah, when I was younger, I was going to, I was, like, trying to go for the legal change and everything. But then, like, in college, I I tried to get people to call me, like, not my legal name. And it would turned into, like, a whole thing where people, like, didn't want to do it. But then once I started working, I was like this kind of works because like nobody here is going to look me up on the internet and find anything about me except for like my yeah. work profile. And I was like, and especially once I was teaching and TAing, I was like, this is kind of okay. Cause now none of my students are going to like find information on me.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so you mentioned you could be looked up on Google scholar. What do you have on there?
1: Uh, So Google Scholar and my publications and stuff are all under my given name. Cool. So that would all be under Dr. Marion Holmes.
0: Awesome. All right. So you keep mentioning a slag heap. I don't know what a slag heap is. It seems tight. Hit me with a slag heap.
1: So the slag heap is an industrial waste dump. Um, Slag in general is iron and steel mill waste. It's not a great place to be a plant. It has really high pH. Really high calcium so in some respects it's almost like a limestone substrate but it also has all these like silicates and aluminum and it's metal waste so it it gets very hot it can cement into these flows that are almost like lava flows Uh, it's full of like rust and all kinds of other nasty things and it doesn't hold water very well it's low in most nutrients so it can be anything from like a you know, kind of a dry, crappy soil to a hardened cement-like substance. And um, slag heaps in general are just kind of an inevitable consequence of iron and steel manufacture. In Europe, there's slag heaps going back to the Bronze Age and so on and so forth that are historical sites that you can go visit. Um, There's an article called, like, Slag Heap Tourism, The Next Frontier or something that I always like to show people. (laughs) Yeah, that that had me excited. I was like, I want to go to France and go to the slag heap. Yeah, Uh, but Pittsburgh, uh, steel history, steel city, Pittsburgh Steelers, all that stuff. And we had a lot of steel mills and we had a lot of steel mill waste. And there's one waste pile in particular that's located along Nine Mile Run, which flows into the Monongahela River, which is the river on the southern side of Pittsburgh. And it, it was a whole valley that got totally filled with slag between the 1920s and 1970s. Um, Over 20 stories, cliffs, very, very large quantities of slag uh, just filling this whole valley. And half the valley ended up getting remediated um, in heavy quotes um, in the early 2000s and converted into a luxury housing development. So you too can pay a million (laughs) dollars uh, for a house that's on top of the slide heap and right next oh. to the highway, which never fails to yeah. make me laugh. Um, but there's also a smaller section of the slide heap um, that was supposed to get developed into housing that did not. And that's the half that still exists as this interesting laboratory for plant community assembly and novel post-industrial habitats. And fires and mountain biking and all kinds of other outlaw activities. And that's where I do my research. So what
0: are you looking at specifically, like the plant communities there?
1: Yeah. So to give a little context for it, um, most of my research before I came to Pittsburgh, when I was in grad school, was um, looking at post-agricultural forests and how forest plant communities assemble on abandoned agricultural land. And during these studies, I got really interested in looking at how Individual trees can influence successional trajectories and distributions of species and all that. If you are walking around a forest and it used to be pasture, for example, you might see a single, like a really big tree with spreading branches in all directions. Um, That tree would have existed when that site was a pasture. And then when it was abandoned and reforested, um, the tree was actually able to influence the successional development of that plant community and distributions of species in it in a lot of ways, which is really mm-hmm. cool and exciting. I was looking at that for my like, first solo project after grad school, and that got me really interested in the impacts of single trees on community assembly. So I went to the slide heap on a walk. And the top of the slag heap is like a savanna. It's all forbs and grasses, but there are a whole bunch of these scattered single trees in it, just like the ones I had studied in post-agricultural forests. And you can see that there's all these really cool processes going on near them. They're facilitating other plants in this really harsh environment. And so my work is mostly looking at facilitation by these scattered nurse trees on the top of the slag heap and, and incorporating into that questions about um, species specific relationships and invasion.
0: So, were they originally forested areas that were then kind of completely changed by the slag heap?
1: Yeah, so the valley was forests mm-hmm. and farms, and the land that got the slag dumped on it, I don't know if it was farmed at the time that it was purchased for slag dumping, but there's other areas in the valley and nearby that had been converted to agriculture. And then you also had some forest on some of the steep slopes and other areas.
0: And what are you finding that's like growing and colonizing again? Is it just like massive amounts of invasives and then the old wolf trees?
1: So it's a bunch of different stuff and a lot of invasive species. Um, But one of the things that's really interesting about it is that because it's very high pH and very high in calcium. You also have a lot of these limestone grassland species that you would see in kind of a degraded limestone meadow in Pennsylvania. So there's native grasses. There's a lot of, or fair amount of um, butterfly milkweed. There's some other calcifiles in there. And although it's heavily invaded, it's still really popular with insects and other organisms that come and hang out there and as a grassland there aren't that many meadows and grasslands in the pittsburgh area but because it's one of the grasslands that's not heavily intensively managed or used um, you get some interesting use by birds and things like that Um, the trees that are in it are all pretty young they all were not on there 20 years ago They are um, mostly non-natives. There's a couple of eastern red cedars, another calcifilic um, limestone meadow type of species. But the trees that I study are all non-native. So they're tree of heaven or ailanthus and Chinese elm and um, a single white mulberry.
0: So are you finding that like there's a layer of soil coming back to support these Larger species, native or not, like you said, nothing was really out there in terms of that twenty or however many years ago.
1: there's soil in some spots, but it's really spatially yeah. variable um there's places where the top the slag on the top is like you can stick a probe down into it and go down like a few centimeters and there's a lot of places where you can't. you just kind of like hit the top and it goes clink, and it's like yeah. I'm not going in so there's spots where soils developed on top a little bit, and some of the areas with denser grass seem to be that there could be a really cool relationship with the legumes too, because there's, there's a lot of non-native legume species um, like Medicago and uh, crown vetch and all that. And some of the areas where you have high legume cover also seem to be the areas where you're getting denser, tall Mm -hmm. grasses. And I wonder if there's a relationship going on there too. And then you also have these areas with really, really sparse vegetation that are just like bare slag with scattered plants where the soil is really shallow and it doesn't look like there's much developing on it you've got some like interesting looking like moss and lichen and algae like maybe even bio crust Mm. stuff going on but i don't know enough about that to say anything else about it that's cool
0: though i mean in my mind like that's like the ultimate bladed wasteland but like the fact that it's like no yeah i mean it's you know it is what it is things are going to grow on it and come back as they can that's really cool
1: yeah, that's one of the things I find really exciting about it is that it's it's, it's like the definition of a novel community. You know, it's it's a trash yeah. pile, but you're getting like interesting things growing on it, whether it's native species or non-natives that are not common elsewhere. Like um, there's a ton of vipers by gloss growing there, which is not something you see a lot in the Pittsburgh area. It's non-native, but it's it's very much a calcifile. You'll see like stands of it growing on limestone road cuts elsewhere in the state. And that's it. Uh, but there's a ton of it at the slide heap, and the hummingbird moths and everybody love it. Uh, it's also just a really cool, charismatic yeah. plant, like all these tall spikes of purple blue flowers in midsummer. It's like one of the ultimate like um, Mon Valley summer solstice plants, kind of. It's it gives us this like beautiful, colorful midsummer landscape. Um, so you've got this like really cool assemblage of unusual non natives, natives, and like. Common non-natives, but the way that you can see all these species doing all the successional processes and forming patterns and whatnot in the community is extremely fun.
0: Are there any strange animals that show up in there? Do you know? Like, Do any vernal pools reassemble at the top of the slag?
1: So there are some wet spots, and some friends and I had commented on them. I don't think they actually support any of the vernal pool life, but they're is a form of heterogeneity there with despite the fact that it's like super dry you've got these like little depressions um, that do hold water and the water doesn't Mm -hmm. go anywhere but i don't think anything actually is using them at this point maybe in the future um there are some grassland birds that were using it i cannot remember what types i think at least one of them was a sparrow uh, that somebody was telling me was nesting up there that's not locally common
0: that's pretty cool yeah i mean like I've done coastal sage restoration in coastal California and like places that used to be bombing ranges. Like I would find like the dummy rounds, like pretty regularly that they would shoot just to get like aiming practice in. I didn't know they were dummy rounds at the time. I thought I was goner, but, and so it's just like, you know, a hundred years of military pollution and then suburbanization. And then you plant a couple of like critical species of shrub. And then all of a sudden, like super rare birds are back. Like they're living in the 20 acres next to a Trader Joe's, like, nothing ever changed. Like, that's all I need. It's so easy.
1: I actually, that's a great point, because I've thought to myself, like, it would be really fun to do some experiments with introducing some of our less common, like, dry limestone specialist species and see how they would fare yeah. in the slag heap because it's it's their habitat. There's other calciphiles there. So I wondered if you did like some kind of a introduction experiment and got populations of some of those up there, like how successful it would be. I really want to try um, growing cactus in slag and see what happens because there's a couple different species of Opuntia or prickly pear cactus in Pennsylvania that yeah. grow wild. And um, that's dry hot limestone soil with a lot of calcium is like one of their favorite places so that one i think would yeah be really fun. you have
0: humafusa uh what else would you have other than that i don't know maybe out there
1: um, i am gonna forget which other one we have they actually just got determined oh to be yeah species they, like a yeah, few I years ago split. i saw it at a conference somebody announced guess what we now have two <laughs> and everybody cheered
0: literally doubled the amount of species i know i was that was such a trip growing up in the northeast to like find out that there's cacti that occur naturally and they just are there and they were there the whole time and like i remember i went to this house on the cape and they had a bunch of cacti in the garden and i was just like what like i don't understand it's march and this is outside like i mean i still now get it out west uh whenever i see a succulent that's just growing in the ground i'm like oh that's gonna turn into mush come the first frost and I'm like well it doesn't really do that um yeah no but that's that's the tightest shit ever to see a cactus. I mean to see one that would be growing on top of a pile of industrial tailings too like what a what a good metaphor
1: right and and all the cool insects and stuff that hang out there, I'm sure they would love some extra cacti to hang out on too
0: yeah um so how did you find your way into this is these are very specialized things this is like the The deep cut shit that I love. Like, how did you you find your way into learning about uh, post-agricultural trees and slag heap communities?
1: Um, So let's see. The post-agricultural stuff, uh, that's what I ended up studying in grad school. And I have been interested in, like, how plant communities change for a really long time. I would see it happen. And I would also see pattern forming because that's one of my interests within the field is how patterns form in space. In plant communities, like distributions of species, distributions of growth forms, um, what kind of drivers, whether it's biotic interactions or environmental variation, shape distributions, um, how those change through time and so on and so forth, has always just been really interesting to me. And one of the like big things that got me into it was when I went to undergrad, I was taking classes for my major out at a satellite campus because... The school I went to, which was Temple University in Philly, the main campus is like right in North Philly. It's very urban. But my second year of college, when I started taking classes for my major, which was horticulture, most of those are out at the satellite campus, which is about 40 minutes north of Philly in the suburbs. And it was the biggest culture shock I've ever experienced in my life. But the campus is really beautiful. Um, It has an arboretum and a collection of a whole lot of really cool plants Um, Also, all these really neat peripheral areas that are different kinds of wild communities, for lack of a better term. So there was an abandoned orchard. Uh, There were a lot of post-agricultural, like, former farm fields in various stages of succession. So we had like some goldenrod fields, shrublands, really dense young forest, all these really cool abandoned places, Uh, an abandoned tennis court of all things, and that's where I would hang out a lot of the time would be in these different peripheral areas, um, you know, seeing all these cool like agricultural features and what's coming in now that it's not actively agricultural anymore, like going through the abandoned orchard and you can see traces of it. Like you can see the apple trees in straight lines and all the cool old um, fence posts and sometimes random abandoned tools and things like that. There's all these like wonderful patterns and processes to observe and getting to see that and explore it in a lot of depth was really interesting to me i got really excited about that we would go look at it for all the ecology labs too and uh, the tennis court also was especially important to a lot of us because that's basically primary Mm -hmm. succession so when you abandon an orchard or a farm field there's plants there and what plants there are are going to change, but when you abandon a tennis court, that's totally new substrate for colonization. So you got to see all these primary succession processes happen on the tennis court substrate, um, with different cracks forming and species establishing in that, and then facilitating other species and changing the microhabitats and where the mosses are generating and what they're responding to, and just all these really cool things to look at and consider and that's what got me like, especially interested in succession and agricultural history and all that. Um, but I didn't go to grad school for a few years after I finished undergrad. And then when I was looking at grad schools, one of my big problems was like, I didn't want to go to grad school right away because there's just too many different things. <laughs> that are interesting. It's like, I don't know that I can pick something yeah. to specialize in right now, but you know, I worked for a few years in different jobs. And when it came time to actually like look into grad school, I was like miserable at my job and hated my life. So I was like, yeah, screw it. I'm going back to school. And when it came time to actually look at different people's labs and see what kind of research people were doing I kept coming back to these like vegetation dynamics and succession and how forests develop through time. And some of the a lot of the people actually are working on like post agricultural sites or logged sites or other different kinds of land uses. So that ended up being what I did.
0: So there I once read a very hot take that it's hard to pinpoint what drove evolution in eastern meadows for like the wildflowers because they're so ephemeral um i have not further developed that opinion but is that something that holds any water like i just thought it was so crazy that somebody considered it a mystery as to why like plant communities in meadows are so like kind of rigorous when it lasts for you know in a place in the absence of like indigenous burning or something which there probably wasn't many like oh they just you know somebody was puzzled at the facts that these showy wildflowers could grow in an open sunny area when it was supposed to all be, you know, primordial forest.
1: Yeah. And I think in a lot of places, I I think honestly that the meadow communities are kind of underappreciated. So a couple examples in the Philly area, that's a place that, you know, most people, when you tell them southeastern Pennsylvania, they're going to think it was Mm. all forest, but there are all these really, really interesting, different specialized meadow and grassland communities there uh, that were documented. One of the benefits of some of the eastern cities is that you had really early written uh, documentation of communities by European settlers. So there was a lot of meadow and a lot of different open communities, uh, many of which then were gone because the management was lost. But they were there and clearly there was enough of them, maybe not always in the same place. You know, we talk about the, the shifting mosaic of land uses and that maybe these meadows were not always in the same exact Mm -hmm. place for thousands of years, but there was enough meadow on the landscape for the community to persist. And in Southeastern Ohio, very densely forested region now, but there are all these little like tiny pocket prairies. And that's something that I've had to argue about with people because there are a couple of them that are well-known and studied, but I think they're a lot more common than people realize. And they're not very large, so they're easy to miss. But you go to the tops of ridges where you've got these limestone outcroppings and limestone soil, and there will be sites that are full of openland species, um, grasses and forbs, and they do get encroached on quite a bit by woody plants in the absence of management. But despite that, they've managed to persist as open communities for many, many decades after all the surrounding pasture that was part of the same land use complex in 100 years ago. It's all forests now but the central areas will retain some of this open land character and a lot of the distinctive species, despite the woody encroachment. So that suggests that this is a different community type based on this limestone substrate. And unfortunately the records there are not very great of what was, what was growing there at European colonization. You know, there's a lot of forest, but there's not fantastic data on that. So it's, it's, very much reconstructing it, but there, you know, a lot of those areas, um, even after colonization, like they were pastured and um pasture ridgetop pastures, a lot of those openland species probably just hung out in there still if they weren't getting completely eaten and having the livestock in there would have certainly kept the woody encroachment at bay. Yeah, I
0: have like a a pet theory that there's probably really old lineages of local plants like along you know if a fence post that's been there for 400 years and it has you know just enough area where the cows can't snip it down i'm like uh, the og community exists in this you know square foot area like i wonder if the local genetics that have been lost otherwise could be found in like road ditches and things like that around spots that have been just heavily converted to agriculture or like um i know that urban areas that are wet enough can get or even, I think Philly has, like, really cool ferns that just grow in the old mortar of brick buildings. Like, have you seen that?
1: Oh, yes. That is
0: so tight. Like, do you know much about how that just, you know, luck of the draw, clean enough air, they can just grab onto a substrate with a spore, and that's all they need?
1: Yeah, that seems to be it. Like, there's a couple spots in particular where you've got a lot of different types of old mortar, so the chemistry is a little bit different, and it's basically this uh, this analog of their natural habitats, which are rare, but the spores could get there. So you go to Lewisick and Valley in particular, and you look at all these old stone structures and see an incredible amount of fern diversity. And there's some of the fern species um, that live in the masonry that are really, really common in cities because there's all this mm-hmm. created habitat for them, but you like never see them anywhere else. They're rare everywhere else because they historically only occurred on specific kinds of rock outcroppings, that aren't that common but we've built a bunch of them now so now you see them everywhere
0: (laughs) that's crazy to think about like they're actually it's almost like the opposite of the problem for once where it's like oh no we've created all this habitat for these ferns they're doing fantastic At the cost of every other thing that we paved over to build it, but still.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things that's so interesting to me about novel communities and assembly in response to all of these different processes, whether it's agriculture or industrial waste or urbanization, is that you have all these different responses. And, you know, so much of what you read about is negative. It's like, you know, land use is always bad. But the reality is like a lot more chaotic than that. And that's what Mm. makes it such an interesting field of study to me because there's so many different responses and not everything is always going to be the same story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any examples of like, uh, besides the slag heap and mortar ferns that you've seen that have really stuck out to you of like call and response between industrial development and plants saying, fuck that, we're fine with it.
1: Yeah. uh, There's actually another fern example um, from Philly there was an abandoned train station. So there's an abandoned rail viaduct that goes through part of the city. And Mm -hmm. it's a meadow, essentially. It's um, like an elevated meadow with lots of milkweeds and native grasses and other interesting things. But there used to be an abandoned train station on it, which I think has been torn down in recent years. And the inside of it, dark, shady, moist, and, uh, you know, botanists like to go explore abandoned places and see what's happening. And uh, a number of years ago, some of my friends sent me a photo uh, uh, titled uh, Spring Garden Street Station Fernery. Huh. Because inside, there were like a half dozen species of ferns all growing in the building. And it wasn't on the masonry. It was just in the like middle of this rotten building. I guess they were growing on the rotten wood. And none of these are fern species that you see in that part of Philadelphia very commonly. They must have come, you know, the spores come a long way. Uh, but that was another one. Like I, I would not have expected to see all those dryopteruses yeah. in that area of town. But there they were. And then you go outside of the station and there's this really interesting meadow community and um lots of other weird stuff there. There was a Southern magnolia that had naturalized up there. That was the first naturalized Southern magnolia in Pennsylvania that any of us were aware of.
0: Okay. It's
1: a really common cultivated species. It's fleshy fruited. Birds like to eat the fruit, but there was nothing in the literature and none of us had seen them actually like naturalize on their own Mm -hmm. beyond that. So that was a really exciting one. That one we published on. Do
0: you think that's like a climactic shift, kind of pushing it northwards too?
1: I think it's several different things. Uh, The cultivars of southern magnolia that get planted in Philly tend to be selected for cold hardiness and I don't know enough about this to say with certainty but I suspect that one of the reasons it hasn't naturalized that effectively could be because maybe it's cold hardiness is life stage specific so maybe you have a young tree that's out in the landscape and it's cold hardy but maybe a seedling wouldn't be or maybe it's germination cues might be interrupted something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but then in a lot of these urban habitats, like that train viaduct, it's hot up there. It's like rock, you know, it's it's like fill rock under the train tracks that gets very hot. And maybe that did a better job of uh, simulating whatever environment it needs to germinate and establish.
0: What is the Catalpa scene like there? Because that is making moves into eastern Massachusetts and I feel like a million other places. Like it's only a matter of time before it's, I don't know, it, st- it stays on the periphery of forests as far as I can tell, but like it's the ultimate highway plant right now. And I feel like it's going to get a lot more vigorous in the coming decades.
1: That's my impression of it too. There's a lot of it along that real viaduct. There's a lot of it in urban areas. Um, there's a couple of them right down the hill from me in my town I live in now. Uh, we have a lot of abandoned property and there's a lot of catalpas in the abandoned properties. Uh, but I don't ever really see it in interior forest or anything like that. So it seems very much like an edge, urbanized, highway-type area of plant.
0: Yeah, I used to get uh, staghorn sumac and Tree of Heaven mixed up as a kid. And so I just always assumed staghorn sumac was like the highway plant. And I would call it that. Like When I was like, Before I knew I wanted to be into botany and I was just like being outside, I'm like, oh yeah, there's like a big stand of highway plant over there. And everyone's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And it turns out it was actually Staghorn Sumac and not Atlantis, thank God. But I know it's just like that invasion corridor, if you want to call it that. I mean, Catalpa is native to the same landmass, but it's just always so weird to see what pops up and how in certain areas like. Boston has a ton of solidago that grows along Storo Drive, I think, um, which is like right along the Charles River. And I mean, I don't know what the soil is like underneath. It's probably all just garbage fill. But like in autumn, it'll just be like lined. Every sideway crack has, you know, the four foot tall, gigantic goldenrod, like at least something is still clinging on here.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot of interesting cases of that, too, with the weird range expansions and stuff there's other magnolias that are doing that so the umbrella magnolia and the big leaf magnolia are also really well established and naturalized in philadelphia Um, we published on the magnolia macrophylla a few years ago and um, since we like officially documented i think it's spread even more i see more of them every time i'm in that park now
0: damn do you pay attention to any species that might be like moving north out of your area
1: as in like disappearing from the area
0: yeah i like i don't want to say like extirpated or anything but like you know there was a lot and then now there's not so much like kind of is anything are these invasions displacing things that are kind of moving on their way north as well
1: so it's possible um the park that all the magnolias are at had a lot of hemlock in the gorge now Emelock isn't like a super common tree in the Philly area because it likes colder, Mm -hmm. moister sites, but you would get it in river valleys, gorges, north-facing slopes, things like that. And there was a lot more of it in that same gorge, um, but it's really hard to say how much of that is strictly climate-related and how much of it's woolly adult-related because... They're probably both doing it. They probably got like the adelgium on one side and the climate on the other, like killing them all off. But that's one that probably is not going to be left, at least not that many of them in that particular park for a long time. And the umbrella and big leaf magnolias do really well in the same kind of habitat as the hemlock. So that could be something that would be effectively replacing it.
0: That's super interesting. I hadn't thought about because you know I always imagine hemlock is like north facing mount- mountain slopes or something. But like yeah, these little microclimates that something that is analogous further southwest, whatever east. Like that's that's really cool to think about, or even just like conifer being replaced by a broadleaf is. I you don't know. It feels weird in my head. It shouldn't be
1: right. Yeah, there's the conifers aren't really dominant in any of the places that I've lived or worked. So like southeastern Ohio, same story. There are some pine stands, but not that many where I was. And there's hemlock in southeastern Ohio. But just like in the Philly area, it's limited to microhabitats. So there's some very famous gorges in the Hawking Hills that are hemlock dominated. And there's some random slopes you'll find that are hemlock dominated. But it's it's not common.
0: Yeah. I know, adelgid's just been so gnarly. I mean, they need, I don't know, it's been weird because the climate change thing now seems to be years of warm drought, and then they just get hammered with the coldest precipitation year in however many decades, and it's like, it knocks it back. I'm just like wondering, like, in New England with the adelgid specifically, I remember, you know, it was, it's coming, it's here, oh god, it's over, and then we got like two really bad winters, and they're like, actually, you might hold on for a little bit longer. Like, uh, uh, spotted lanternfly, that's really bad in your area, right? Oh, yeah. Does that, I don't know too much about it. I moved west, like, the second I got out of college, so I'm actually, like, a bad eastern ecologist now. But is that eating anything other than Tree of Heaven, or is it still kind of host-specific, as far as people can tell?
1: So, I don't know, and it only showed up here, like, two or Mm -hmm. three years ago. I remember there being a lot of them in Philly in 2020, but none in Pittsburgh. And then they showed up in Pittsburgh, like within the last couple of years. And this year they're going yeah. gangbusters. There's like thousands of them everywhere. And I don't actually know. I don't know if there's been any official determinations of it yet. I haven't really looked into it, but I, I don't know yet if it's really making a dent in any native species or what. I mean, they, they love the atlantis, yeah. that's for sure. Um, there might be some research out of like the the orchards and stuff, because I know that people were very concerned about them for, I think, grapes and cherries and those kind of crops. And I have wild grapes and wild cherries on my slope, so I don't want yeah. them to eat them. Um, but I don't know for sure what the the verdict has kind of been on their actual impacts.
0: I know they they're just starting to show up in coastal California it's the same deal like they weren't here and now it's like everyone's all hands on deck like if you find it kill it because uh, um, you know viticulture is like a huge thing out here but I don't know I, all I've ever heard about it I know it's one of those things that's so new it's probably going to adapt and eat something else at some point but I'm like hey in the meantime it's kind of taking care of the tree of heaven for us a little bit
1: yeah I hope it kills my tree of heaven that would be great
0: <laughs> didn't they introduce some kind of bio control for it there's a moth or Thought they did, something was released, I thought. Maybe I'm completely off base.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, something was released. I don't know when or like, how successful it's been. The Aelanthus webworm moth eats it, and I think that's a native, though. But they, they, I've seen them around, but I don't think that they're actually like, killing it, unfortunately. They're really cute, though.
0: Yeah, they are. Oh, interesting. There's one other potential biocontrol for Tree of Heaven, a pathogen that causes wilting known as Verticillium dahlia which was recently discovered in Italy. Oh, what the fuck? That's cool as hell. Interesting. On-air research. I don't come prepared. Uh, So, okay, where else... Have you worked mostly in the area that you are now, then?
1: So, uh, I worked in southeastern Ohio for grad school, and then after grad school, I moved up to Pittsburgh, which is about three, three and a half hours away from Athens County, where I went to grad school. And it's, it's a similar ecoregion. We're both in the unglaciated Allegheny Plateau. Uh, floristically, there are some differences. And Pittsburgh is kind of on the dividing line between some of these differences. So southeastern Ohio has uh, mixed mesophytic forest. It's got um, a lot of different oak species, maple, beech, tulip poplar. Um, very diverse. You can see a whole lot of tree species in a small area. And... It's got like a slightly more Western affinity than the Pittsburgh area. So you see mm-hmm. more species like yellow buckeye there. Um, Pittsburgh is kind of on the, on the uh, northern edge of the range of some of the species that you see in Southeast Ohio. So we have them, but they're less common. And then we're also on the southern edge of some of the more northern hardwood types. So you go a little bit north of Pittsburgh, like the one campus I teach at. And the forest community is very dominated by, uh, like, black cherry and oaks and maple and sassafras. It's, it's very different in character. Whereas then if you go to, like, an hour south of Pittsburgh, then the forest is a lot more like southeastern Ohio, where you have more yellow buckeye and not as many of these northern species.
0: Ohio gets a bad rap, but the southern border... I have never really explored it, but it looks gorgeous as hell and it has all these weird, like, oh uh, god is it taxodium where there's like a weird it's the northernmost kind of its forest is found in like Illinois and Ohio
1: yeah the taxodium come into Indiana oh, okay. and that's like their northernmost point there um, that Indiana is a lot like Ohio in that it has like an unglaciated half that's really really botanically diverse and rich and topographically heterogeneous and then it's got a glaciated half in the north which a lot of it was just converted to Mm row crop agriculture. So a lot of the botanical diversity that persists is in places that were undesirable for that.
0: Did you ever hear about the Ohio grass man?
1: No. He is,
0: or she, it is a subspecies of Bigfoot that looks like it's in a ghillie suit and it weaves these big stick huts, basically. And, um, like haunts the cornfields or something i don't know i remember i went to cedar point as a kid and i was like so stoked to go see the ohio Grassman. like back when like the the monster hunter shows were absolute gospel truth to me i was just like oh my god like he's gonna be out here that would be a fun bullshit paper is to do like Glaciation's effect on Sasquatch subspecies and diversity because every area, like there's a yuckerman yeah. out in the desert, there's Bigfoot and PNW, there's the skunk ape in Florida, like they get stinkier and swampier as you go east.
1: Yeah, and for just Ohio, like, the southern portion of the state that wasn't glaciated is so much more forested. So if you looked at a map of Bigfoot sightings or grassman sightings, it wouldn't surprise me if more of them were down there just because that's where the forest is.
0: I know, right? And then people are like, oh, oh yeah, it was a grizzly bear. Or not a grizzly bear, it was a black bear standing on its hind legs, and I completely thought it was a species of man.
1: One of the things that they supposedly do that I remember hearing is that they, like, they knock branches on trees and they make this, like, tapping sound. So we always used to laugh about how they might just be hearing uh, researchers tapping on soil cores.
0: <laughs> I always wonder if I'm ever responsible for somebody like thinking they saw something supernatural. It's like day four or five of a hitch. I'm like barely cognizant as it is just like stumbling through. Like I got so stuck in some chaparral at work the other day that I was like lost for a couple of minutes. And I was like, if there was just some, like, mountain biker or something, and they just heard me going, like, breaking through this bush, like, they'd completely think it was something strange.
1: Totally. You're, like, off trail, down in the valley. The visibility isn't necessarily great. You're making yeah. tapping sounds. Definitely encrypted.
0: I was getting cut up so bad. I was getting so, like, I was, just like, starting to, like, whack bushes and shit. Like, bah, fuck, God, Just, like, making the biggest commotion. <laughs> Absolutely scared some local. Um, my God. Anyways, Ohio's great the southern part. I don't know about the northern part.
1: The northern and western parts have a lot of really great botany, but it's kind of depressing in a way because so much of it was just converted Mm -hmm. to row crops. So there's really interesting stuff. Um, Along the lake, there's some very special communities and there's cool fens and remnant oak savannas and cemetery prairie remnants and things. But even the coolest ones, like the cemetery prairies are at peak bloom right now, Mm -hmm. but it's still just like, wow, wow, this is like yeah. an acre at most. And everywhere outside this cemetery fence is corn and soybeans. So a lot of the places that are left are, are small and surrounded by agriculture. And there's a lot of really interesting conservation biology research on these like small mm-hmm. fragmented habitats and what that does for the genetics of the species and flow of species and genes between communities and things like that. But it, it also is kind of sad when you're out in these sites sometimes i
0: know right and like oh i'm at least I, there is prairie here and you're like oh i'm still in a graveyard it's just on principle it's a depressing area um i know there was some seed banking i think going on with the little pocket prairies there in the forgotten corners of towns and things which is i'm really interested to see how that is going to be applied to so like so there's i know in the midwest there's a small but growing movement to kind of buy up ag land as it's being sold or retired or whatever and, like, trying to convert it back. Um, It seems like agriculture has this nullifying effect on soil mycorrhizae, you know, I'm sure through, like, herbicide and fungicide and whatnot. But, like, there are certain communities, California coastal sage scrub will not come back as a, like, stable community on land that's been plowed, and they can't quite figure out why, or at least when I read the couple of papers about it, like... The fungal community, it's not that. Like, it's just, you know, it's just one of those weird ephemera that like, oh, well, you know, not anymore. But, you know, do, do you find that there are areas that are just kind of... I mean, I know the slag heap is a completely different chemistry now, but are there certain ecosystems that are just struggling super duper hard to come back and there's no good reason for it? Or is it kind of like A to B to C, you can restore most things?
1: So with forests, it's a really interesting question because... There are certain aspects of forests that visibly it's like, all right, this was a farm field 70 years ago. Now it's a a forest, but so much of the nuance of those communities and the complexity of those communities disappears for like a hundred years or more. And we don't even really necessarily have the timescale since abandonment in any cases to determine what that timescale might actually be, because you can go in a post-agricultural forest that's almost 100 years since canopy closure, and it'll still be missing a number of the herbaceous species and structural features that you would see in a long-established forest. So with forests, it's interesting because you can very obviously see the forest is back, but when you start deconstructing that into its component parts and say, like, well, okay, but what aspects of the forest? We have a tree canopy, but 80% of the biodiversity in the forest is in the herb layer. And a lot of those species are not back.
0: Is that where your wolf tree research comes into play?
1: Somewhat. And some of the things that were really interesting there is the way that they can seem to act as something of refugia in the herbaceous layer. Oh, okay. Because the herbaceous layer, there were all these species. So for Eastern forests, one of the big questions in successional ecology is looking at dispersal syndromes. Because there's a lot of different ways that they move around. And one of the reasons that they don't come back in post-agricultural sites is because a lot of them disperse very slowly so for example a lot of them are dispersed by ants and there are a whole lot of them also that have like no apparent assisted dispersal mechanism you know there's probably like all kinds of interactions with things like caching seeds and water moving them across the ground and stuff like that but those are somewhat local and when you're in a younger forest a lot of times what will be missing are those species that are dispersal limited and it may be the ant dispersed species or the species without an apparent dispersal mechanism. So when you look at sites with wolf trees in them, um, around the wolf tree, what I found was that there are more ant dispersed and unassisted dispersed species um, clustered around that tree than there are in the surrounding matrix in the post agricultural forest. And it's hard to say with certainty, because again, this is looking at modern patterns and trying to figure out some of the mechanisms that might be behind them. I I didn't go in pastures with wolf trees in them now because equivalent ones are pretty hard to find at this point. Uh, But the fact that there are some of these dispersal limited species clustered around the pasture trees could partially be because they were able to survive there during active pasturing. Uh, maybe the, why, the livestock didn't get too close. They were hanging out under the tree for shade, but maybe the roots protected some of the species or something like that. Um, some cases it could also be dispersal. So there's a lot of evidence that ants use single trees in ecosystems, um, whether it's a pasture or Mediterranean ecosystem, anywhere where you've got a scattered tree, there tends to be more ant activity at those trees. So for ant dispersed species, that makes a lot of sense. If the ants are using the tree and they're, that's where they're nesting and they're dispersing the seeds there, then, you know, that could be why you have more ant dispersed seeds near the pasture tree. Um, there's all one of the other things that was really interesting was that you had more um, adhesive dispersed individuals, that is uh, the Velcro seeds. And we found some really interesting literature from Europe about How even within intact forest systems, large trees are like the bathhouse for a lot of fuzzy wildlife because that's where the wild boars and the bears and everything else will go and they'll rub up against these large trees with coarse bark to clean themselves and it'll clean all the burrs and sticky things out of their fur. Wow.
0: That's crazy. I love that. That is so cool.
1: And that wasn't something I was expecting when I put that study together. It's one of those things where you see a pattern and you have to kind of figure out what's going on there yeah. and learn all this really cool stuff after the fact.
0: Do you have many wild boars in that area?
1: Not in Athens County, but in Minton County, the next county over, it's supposed to be great boar hunting. I had a colleague <laughs> who had great success with hunting them over there.
0: Interesting. Do you a seed bank project and a boar? Um, <laughs> Why are they called wolf trees?
1: So that has multiple explanations to it, depending on who you ask. Uh, one explanation is that they grow out by themselves, like a lone wolf. But <laughs> another one,
0: alpha tree,
1: right? Yeah, it's it's kind of silly. There's there's like all the explanations for the name I've heard. You could probably do like a whole research project on like the different cultural baggage behind them. Mm-hmm. But there's also like an explanation of. That I found, especially in the like mid 20th century forestry literature that argued that if you have one of these in your woodlot, you need to get rid of it because they are aggressive oh. and will predate the development of your stand and suppress younger, newer, more valuable trees from coming in. And a wolf tree is big and gnarled and possibly partially rotten that doesn't produce quality lumber, and it's just going to suppress younger trees that would produce quality lumber, so you should cut wow. them down in birth. I
0: didn't even think that there'd be, like, a negative connotation. It just sounds so badass that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like... I, I, I always thought is where the livestock would go to, like, hide from wolves, but I just made that up.
1: That would make sense. <laughs>
0: like, this is our <laughs> only kind of cover to our backs, like... That's hilarious, though, that they were demonizing them because they fucked up their lumber. Uh, Yeah, I know, and I'm sure it's the same down there too. But in Massachusetts, you know, we just have all of our forest was cut at one point, and everything that's back, same deal. You know, you'll have one gigantic tree surrounded by a million saplings with like a little rock wall that delineated, you know, Farmer Brown's land from the other guys. Um, But it seems like, at least in that case, a lot of the herbaceous understory comes back what is i forget the latin name Do you have indian cucumber root oh yeah isn't that kind of like an indicator as to like the forest's health or how long it's been undisturbed
1: so i saw that a lot during my postdoc research mm-hmm. and it was mostly in the old forests and the previously logged forests as opposed to the agricultural or mined forests um, it was present in some of the post-agricultural and mined forests but mm-hmm. not as common so that one seems to be, you know, you'll you'll find more of it in sites that weren't mined or plowed.
0: When you say mined, do you mean just heavily influenced by people or like legitimately mined for soil or
1: oh, like strip mines.
0: Damn, damn. I never I never think about that until I see one.
1: Yeah, we've got a lot of that down here.
0: Yeah. What is is it just coal and iron? Like
1: Yeah, it's it's coal. Um the strip mines that I was working at during my postdoc, um, they were basically there's coal strata, and the cheapest way to get it is to take off all of the soil and the rock strata above it and just scoop it all out <laughs> and then dump everything back on top of it and leave it.
0: Yeah, and that works great. No questions.
1: Yeah, the worst field, the single like worst fieldwork experience of my life when working in those strip mines. So there's cool ecology there, but I also don't have anything too nice to say about them.
0: Yeah. Are you in an active area or is it just kind of forgotten about when you're out there?
1: No, it had been abandoned since the 50s.
0: What sucks so bad about it?
1: So it was, it was reforested at least, so it was shady.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Um, basically, in some of these strip mines, it's like something you would find in some like treacherous adventure scene in a sword and sorcery novel, <laughs> where you've got steep piles of spoil that collapse Ooh. underfoot as you walk on them. You'll slide down these spoil heaps toward these deep, steep-sided gouges mm-hmm. in the bedrock. That are too wide to jump across, but too narrow and steep to just cl- go down and go through.
0: Ooh, so you just get knocked.
1: Just terrible, and they're and they're full of this like fetid, greasy-looking orange water with acid mine drainage. It's yeah. like bright orange and sticky. uh Kind of just just demonic and haunted. And then you'll come to these, like, gouged high walls of rock that look like they could collapse at any minute. It's very, very treacherous terrain on its own. And then you also put a couple-meter-tall layer of multiflora rose on top of everything that's so thick you can't see. You can't tell where you're going. It's terrible. It's it's extremely terrible. And I got a, uh, let's see... I got all kinds of injuries in those strip mines. I got a corneal abrasion from walking into Shout something. Out there. Um there's false or there's wood nettle like up to your shoulders. There's multiflora rows and between the topography and then the multiflora rows, like it's impossible to navigate and you can't see where you're going even yeah. if you have like a GPS directly in your hand in front of you. <laughs> and then it started pouring so violently that i couldn't see from the rain oh my god and like you know wash your glasses off your face level of pouring and um if i'm looking at the gps on the ipad every time a raindrop falls on it it thinks i'm trying to like mark a point on it
0: oh god no
1: and you can't like scramble up those spoil piles in that kind of rain safely but it's also a thunderstorm so you don't really want to be out so you have to figure out like how to get out of there without like Breaking your leg is terrible.
0: What did you do? How did you survive that situation?
1: Eventually the rain stopped and I like found my way out.
0: You just white knuckled it in the meantime?
1: Yeah, it it was bad.
0: If there's anything that's ever going to push me over the edge in the field, it's an iPad malfunctioning. It makes me so irrationally angry.
1: Yeah, I was never a big technology person in my research. I'm like, get a a pocket size notebook and a pencil and like a paper map and all that. That's how I've done like everything. But then for my postdoc, you know, it's like, yay, it's a postdoc, I'm going to learn new skills, I'm going to do new things. And the reserve I was working at is very, very like GIS-oriented. They have a GIS expert in-house. They do all this really cool stuff with mapping and all that. And so for this one, the plots and everything that I set up, they did not physically exist in the site. They all existed in this uh, GIS map. And I would go find them using mm. the iPad and like then flag the corners and count everything there. But we didn't actually like leave anything up. It was all just in the internet world somehow. And so that meant recording the data directly into the iPad, which is kind of cool because it means that everything is geo-referenced and like, you don't have mm-hmm. to re-enter the data when you get back from the field and everything. But it was one of those things where it's like, I'm really glad that I did this so that I, I like, have these skills and I learn how to do these things. But every other project I've done since, it's back to the notebook. Yeah.
0: Dang. And now survey one, two, three is the bomb. That's like a newer thing for me. Uh, well, very cool. Thank you very much for talking to me.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah. I'm glad we could make it work. Uh, do you have anything you want people to know about that you have going on? Anything coming up? Anything at all?
1: I'm giving a talk at the Ecological Society of America meeting two weeks from tomorrow. I don't know if this will be listenable by that point.
0: (laughs) I think it should be out by then. What's today's date? So two weeks from the 25th. That'll be...
1: It's, I think, the 8th.
0: Yes, August 8th. Yeah, this will be out by then.
1: Um, So I'm giving a talk August 8th at the ESA meeting in Portland, and it is about heap research. It's about um, a project... That I did over the last couple of years, um, looking at invasion ratios and the relationships between Native and non-Native richness under these nurse trees and how facilitation is shaping invasibility within the slag communities.
0: You know what time you're on?
1: I think 1045 a.m.
0: Perfect. And it's going to be broadcast as well or it's only in person?
1: You know, I'm not entirely sure.
0: Well, I'll
1: make people go. Uh, Well, cool. Thank you very much. Thank you.